This is the Make America Grape Again podcast, produced and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona Wine Monk. In this podcast, we explore wines from all 50 states in the United States of America. Welcome to the Make America Grape Again podcast. I'm your host, Cody Burkett, CSW. I am not. Gary is again joining us for... Ding dong! Mormon land, um, or Utah. Yay, Utah. So what we have here today is a wine made from Utah grapes that was made in Colorado uh, by Sutcliffe Vineyards. This is the White Blend 2014 Montezuma Canyon Ranch, Utah, uh, 11.3% in volume. Uh, to read the back here, our White Blend is sourced from grapes. F- Why am I reading in an accent again? Force of habit. Our white blend is sourced from grapes farmed by Danny Bull at Montezuma Canyon Ranch. It is a blend of Riesling, Chenin Blanc, Chardonnay, and Viognier. This is a floral wine with bright fruit and crisp acidity. A refreshing wine from the punishing hot summers of the Colorado Plateau. I was not able to find exact percentages for this. Uh, I once upon a time took pictures of the uh, percentages as listed in Vino Loco in Flagstaff where I got this bottle. That photo has mysteriously vanished. So as for Utah, in terms of wine, there is wine in Utah, obviously, because we're drinking a wine made from grapes grown in Utah. <gasps> uh, <laughs> shocking. Uh, but the first wine grapes were planted in Utah, apparently, in the 1860s by Mormons. Shocking. I mean, they're, they are the main group there, but still. Um, however, it was soon abandoned... Uh, in terms of viticulture, and not revived until the 1980s. Uh, most of the vineyards are in Utah are located in mountain valleys, some as high as 6,000 feet above sea level. Uh, Utah, a big surprise, has a cold and dry climate, therefore often requiring irrigation. Big shocker there. Six vineyards and wineries. This vineyard is located in the far southeastern corner of Utah, not far from the Colorado border. This vineyard is 20 acres. They're growing six different grape varietals. They're also growing uh, apparently this very unique cross that's kind of specific to the site called the Utah Black Grape. Uh, The Utah Black Grape is apparently a cross of Pinot Noir and Baco Noir. Uh, And they still apparently produce about half a ton of those Utah Black Grapes. Uh, I don't know whether they use them for winemaking or table or not. But I do know that... uh, Stoic Cidery did a rosé cider with grapes from this vineyard. Hmm. I don't know if it's the Utah Black that they used, or Pinot Noir, or Cab Franc. I'm assuming that Cab Franc is one of them because Cab Franc grows everywhere. I'd love to get my hands on some Utah Black and see how it acts and what it tastes like. And you could, oh, you should give them a call. I might. I mean, what do you got to lose? Potentially a lot of money on bad grapes. I mean, yeah, but it's more likely that uh, they'll be, like, laughing at you and saying no. Very true. Um, Or ultimately, you know, they'll be like, oh, no, but you can have some cuttings. Mm -hmm. And then you can plant them. And the Riesling is definitely the most prominent aspect of this blend, I feel. Absolutely. It's got that classic big petrol smell that I get from a lot of German Rieslings that it almost smells like a car peeling out of a driveway uh, really, really fast. It also smells like broken limestone. 
Which, uh, looking, I was trying to find the geology, and you were saying that this reminded you of uh, when you were breaking caliche? Yeah. To, to plant a vineyard, we had to, by hand, break through caliche limestone uh, shelves, or whatever they would be called, layers, because that was what we had to work with. Man, I couldn't find any specific information other than apparently uh, it's a canyon that has petroglyphs. Because it's Utah. And there's apparently uranium deposits. Because it's Utah. And the historic ranch site. Because it's Utah. So past that, I couldn't find out anymore. But the fact that there is uranium, my geology senses tingle and tell me that it's going to be mostly sedimentary rock-based. Because uranium doesn't like to hang around non-sedimentary rocks. In fact, uh, one of the best ways to find uranium in Utah is to look for fossil dinosaur bones because they collected the uranium during the fossilization process. So it's not quite safe to have a bunch of them in your pocket long term if you're traipsing around the Utah desert. Because, hmm. you know, uranium. Uranium. Your pants will glow in the dark. Which, you know, maybe a bonus for some people. <laughs> but, you know, the rave scene is just not that big in Utah, despite what the movie SLC Punk will tell you. <laughs> the palette, however, is... A little lacking. Yeah, it's it has not aged as well as I had hoped. This aged less like a movie star and more like a president. And as it's opening up, the, the flavors are starting to come in, and they're... When we first opened this bottle, there almost seemed to me a huge gap between the Riesling and just nothing in the mid-palate, like a hollow space, and then uh, the Chardonnay uh, or Viognier, something fuller-bodied at the, at the base. And now that it's opening up and a little bit warmer, it's getting a little bit better integrated. It's still not my favorite wine that we reviewed on this podcast, but I would not send it back. Not at all. Uh, it's not quite a cute Mormon chick at your door. But at the same time, it's not an ugly Mormon man at your door. It's a perfectly pleasant Mormon missionary. You know, the minute you show them your icons on the door, they, they run away screaming. But you wouldn't be opposed to spending an afternoon on the porch just chatting. Yeah. If I had to guess, this blend is going to be... Mo wow. The mid-palate is totally coming in now. Mm -hmm. There's like rose hips and... I would almost think that there was Gewürztraminer in here instead of uh, Chenin or... or... Chardonnay and Vignet, but I'm guessing that's probably the Shannon coming through. Because I've had some Loire Shannon that has kind of that character. So if I had to guess with this blend, and, you know, talking about how blends are structured, this is a great wine for that, actually, because you can see how it's fallen and how it's starting to come back. Uh, the Riesling in this blend was definitely providing uh, a great deal of the aromatics and probably the acidity in this vintage. If I had to guess... Uh, the Chardonnay and Viognier were going to provide the body and weight and some of the fuller flavors. And the Chenin was kind of supposed to hold up that middle palate with uh, lighter fruit characters, floral notes, you know, stuff like Vouvray. And this kind of reminds me of a badly aged Vouvray, uh, as well as a German Riesling on the palate. The mm -hmm. nose is totally like German Riesling. Mm -hmm. uh, I like to describe... Like I said before, Riesling is smelling like a, a car peeling out of a driveway, which confuses people. But <laughs> Oh, I totally understand it. It totally smells like yeah. someone's like doing a, uh, what's the 360 term called? Donut? Thank donut. you. It's like someone doing a donut in a driveway and then driving off like 
three times the speed limit. Alright. Statute of limitations has passed, and I, I've done that. I've done other things while doing that. that was, <laughs> that's as much as I'm going to say. On the record, anyway. <laughs> Indeed. So Riesling we've talked about, Viognier we've talked about, Chardonnay we surprisingly have not talked about in the series, but there will be better vintages in the long run to talk about Chardonnay with. As far as I am aware, this is the only Shannon I have that will be potentially on this podcast as of this time. So uh, I think we should talk a little bit about Shannon. I don't really know much about it other than I don't tend to enjoy Arizona examples even ones that don't taste like diesel exhaust and truck tires. I am with you. I think uh, Arizona is not a shit-end state. I don't know. I mean, I'm not quite sure why that was pushed so early on to be planted in Arizona. And now with Bowie gone, uh, I think there's only two plantings of Shenan left in the whole state that I'm aware of. I don't know. Maybe, maybe one more, but there's not a lot anymore. Yeah, two or three vineyards. And it used to be planted... Almost everywhere in every large vineyard. I know, you know, apparently Buell had it at one point, uh, and then it was removed. Uh, obviously, Bowie had a shit ton of it. No, Carlson was getting their Shannon from Bowie. Uh, Dragoon still has it. I think Sam's got some. Sam has some. But I think now it's just Sam and Dragoon that have it. But the good news is... That Bowie's gone? Well... Yes and no, but as for not knowing much about Shannon... Oh, you've got your book. Yep, I have multiple books. Whoa. Because of course we do. Uh, if you want to take the Wine Folly Guide, because it's smaller. I am a Wine Folly. We all are Wine Follies. Uh, by the way, love Wine Folly. Would love if you guys picked us up and syndicated us. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, uh, um. Shannon, by the way, is spelled with a C as opposed to an S, but that's because it's French. Uh, and nothing in French in terms of spelling makes any sense ever. If anyone has ever wondered why uh, existentialism took hold so extensively in France, it's because half the letters already don't matter. <laughs> Shannon Blanc. Did you find it in your book? Yes. Alrighty. What you got in terms of the profile? Fruit has three dots. Body has one dot. Off dry has three dots. Acidity has five dots. And alcohol has three dots. <sighs> Ass hat. <laughs> Ask a stupid question. Well. So, Shannon is an old variety. Um, the earliest attested written version, uh, 1496, 1523, uh, it was originally known as Plante d'Anjou. Uh, it was probably named Shannon after the monastery of Monte Shannon, uh, from where it was then propagated across Thuron, and then returned to its birthplace in Anjou under its new name, Shannon. Uh, earliest written mention of the name Shannon Blanc was 1534. Um, it's from the Loire Valley and Anjou specifically. Um, but it's also pretty common in South Africa. Uh, according to the Big Red Wine Book, it's uh, specialty making crisp, sometimes long-lived wines with varying degrees of sweetness that deserve more recognition. According to the viticultural characteristics, vigorous and fertile depending on the soil type, early budding thus at risk from the spring frost, which is why it's crap in Arizona, and mid-ripening, very susceptible to botrytis from a bunch rot, powdery mildew, and diseases of the wood. 
The bunches are medium-sized to big, but the berries are relatively small. Um, I will say that uh, Shannon Blanc, in general, I have a love-hate relationship with. What? Shannon Blanc. Bruised apple flavors. Sign of oxidation. Which could be that slightly off-fruit character you were getting yeah on this actually apple sort of like funky apple totally makes sense for this here let me pour you some more please do you want some more you don't want to sell me death sticks (laughs) or do i you want to go home and rethink your life (laughs) and again as we pour this into the glass the riesling character is really Mm -hmm. pronounced but I am getting sort of that bruised apple character. So this wine has uh, been oxidized at some point, possibly during the making process. Possibly during the aging process. I mean, that if is... If it got like, hot, that can do it. Yeah. And also, to be fair, that is the point of aging anyway, is mm-hmm. oxidation. Um, have you ever had Sauvignon? I don't believe so. So Sauvignon is described as the most cerebral wine in the world, and it's made from 100% Chenin Blanc. Coming from the Loire Valley. Hmm. And at first I was dubious because I, before I had my first seven years, I hated, hated, hated Chenin Blanc. I didn't see the point to it. I thought it was kind of meh. Listeners of the original Wine Monk podcast will know this. Yes. Um, We have talked our fair share of shit on Chenin. Yes. Shitty Chenin. Perhaps more than it deserved. Yes. So anyway, was not fond of Shannon. Even the the vintages that were ostensibly amazing, quote-unquote, from Vouvray or whatever that I tried, I'm like, okay, these are tolerable, but, you know, not my jam. Not really... I mean, yeah, I can see why people like them, but they're not my thing. And then I tried my first Sauvignons, which... Oh my gosh, this was another epic drunken day. Sadly, not with you. Um, Alas. Unfortunately. I was with Emil Mullen from uh, the college. Uh, who's growing Cove Mesa Vineyard, the only planting of Acertico in Arizona other than Dodds. Hmm. Uh, anyway, so he's like, oh, you've never had souvenirs? You've got to try it. I've got a bottle. We'll, we'll crack it open after uh, class. This is when we were doing the CSW class at the college. And he's like, yeah, I've also got this Chateau Neuf de, de Pop from Bucastel that was like a 99-pointer that I want to crack open to. It needs to go. It needs to be drunk. And I don't want to drink it alone, so you guys come with me. So... First, we opened the Sauvignons, and it was just weird. It was totally, like, oxidized, but in, like, a good way. Mm-hmm. Like, nuts and caramel and vanilla, and also figs and apple and tannins and limestone and all these things. And it just opened up to be just weird and cool and crazy. And then we had the Chateauneuf de Pop Bucastel, which was great. But here's the weird thing. I was able to bounce back and forth, no problem whatsoever between this 99-point Chateau Neuf de Pop and the Sauvignons from, like, 1994. Huh. And I just thought that that was the most bizarre fucking thing because you're not supposed to be able to do that with whites. The, the tradition is you drink whites first and then you can't drink them intermittently with each other because your palate will interfere and your palate is not ready for the... Your palate cannot understand the color from, without, from out of space. Sorry, Lovecraft reference. Fun little fact about me. When I'm 
tasting wine, I tend to start with reds and then finish with whites. That's because you're a rebel and a wine gorilla and a gorilla, renegade gorilla farmer. It is what it says on your business card. Well, it says something around those lines. But, <laughs> but uh, that wine and the other few souvenirs I've had, uh, I liked it so much that I've gotten to the point where whenever I see a souvenirs, I get it. I know I may not drink it for ages, and that's the beautiful thing also is that apparently they can age for Nyon forever even though they're not. I mean, I don't know whether it's a secret in the making process where they oxidize it during fermentation, like a black Chardonnay. Perhaps. Uh, or a Madeira or something. I, I haven't been able to find out how they make it. Um, or if it's something about the soil or something about the minerality or what. But Sauvignon ages really well. So at some point, because I have four Sauvignon floating around, maybe five of them floating around my apartment, at some point we will share one, mark my words. Excellent. So uh, just from your description of it, next time you see one, grab another bottle of it. You can sometimes find them at Whole Foods. Not very often, but I've seen them there. And granted, it's a very crappy Sauvignon's. But for 20 bucks a bottle, it's not bad. It's still better than the average Vouvray, in my opinion. And it's a white wine that makes you sit and rethink everything you knew about white wines. Interesting. But without being like an amber wine. You get the same sort of screwballness that you get from an amber wine, but it's white, and it's not, as far as I'm aware, not skin contact. Hmm. It's weird. And some of the minerality in this is reminding me of the uh, Sauvignon's, too. I am exceptionally curious about this. Uh, no, we're not going to crack one tonight. Damn it. Sorry. It'd be fun. Well, well, we'll see how we feel after we record the podcast with... Uh, Indeed. Uh, your greater than bottle. Uh, speaking of, we should probably wrap this up. I already hear the hounds howling, howling outside the door. So the Mormon missionaries must be near at hand. Uh, overall, I, I really... As this wine opens up, I'm, I'm starting to enjoy and like it more and more. But that first sip, when we just opened the bottle, was kind of jarring. I'd be interested to see how it tastes tomorrow, because tomorrow is a latter day. Indeed. Let's make America grape again. This was an episode of the Make America Grape Again podcast, sponsored, produced, and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona wine monk. You can reach us at make america grape podcast at gmail.com on instagram at at the az wine monk or on twitter at cv burkett be sure to also check out our website make america grape again podcast.com i'm gary you can find me on instagram at greater than wines on facebook at facebook.com slash greater than wines and by email at greater than wines at gmail.com 